Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of PAS FML, the only podcast run by an actual, real-life, current PA student. That's me. I'm your host, PAK, and today's episode, we are actually going to do a review of EKG stuff and talk about some buzzwords that you might see on that. And this is all springing from the fact that I have a huge test in two days. Everybody from my class is coming back to campus. It's been like three months since we have all seen each other and been on campus again because we are doing clinical rotations. Um, And so we are called back next week to do a huge summative exam uh, that we have to pass in order to graduate the program. Um, essentially, it's it's written by our faculty, but it's um, modeled after the actual pants. So it's good practice, except for the fact that we actually have to pass it, uh, which shouldn't be a huge problem for anyone who studied. Uh, but I haven't studied like at all, um, as evidenced by the fact that it's been like almost, I don't know, a month and a half since I made a last episode. Um, I'm sure you guys were fine, um, but I wasn't doing much studying on that. Um, so I have to read an EKG in a couple days, and it's literally been months since I did that. So that's where this episode comes from. And it assumes that you have some general knowledge of how to do EKG stuff. I'm really not going to go into too much details. It literally is a review and some buzzword kind of stuff. Um, so I hope if you don't know anything about EKGs, I don't know how helpful this will be for you. But for anybody like me who's trying to panic study for an EKG exam in like 48 hours, hopefully this should be really helpful. Uh, so a quick update on life. I am actually getting so close to graduation, literally less than 100 days until graduation, which is crazy. Uh, I just finished up my sixth clinical rotation, so only I have two more to go. And my last rotation was a home rotation, so I was home being human with my person, another reason why I, I haven't made any episodes. And it was actually a super interesting clinical rotation. I mean, they all are. But this one was kind of was outside the scope of traditional Western medicine. Um, and it was it's in something called integrative and functional medicine. I'm not going to go into detail, but you definitely should look it up um, just because it its whole its sole purpose is to recognize that yes people might have diseases or chronic illnesses but why and so its whole thing its buzzword is looking at the root cause and going okay well why why do you have this and why do you have that and i'm talking way more about like way way more beyond just the general pathophysiology um for instance like i was i was talk- talking to my classmates today and the example i gave was like you know, have have you ever heard that in times of stress, people lose their hair or women like p- their periods get all out of whack? And like Western medicine just kind of says like, yeah, that's a thing. I mean, I don't know, maybe somebody in Western medicine is explaining it. But like the three of us who were talking like I, we don't remember being taught that that was a thing um, in PA school. Um, and so integrative and functional medicine is like, yeah, I can tell you exactly why uh, it's thyroid stuff. Um because your body's preferentially making cortisol instead of the thyroid hormone. Um, And you need T3 in order to hold the hair follicle in your head. Um, So there you have it. So anyway, the little things like that, um, they don't just kind of like shrug their shoulders and go, yep, well, autoimmunity travels together. I mean, again, that's kind of how autoimmune issues were presented to me. And 
yeah, I know my faculty has to draw lines somewhere. They can't teach you all the things. Um, you, you, I mean, nobody would ever pass PA school if they did that on round one. But um, integrated and functional medicine is is really cool because it it goes way beyond to go. Okay, well, why? Like, so why do autoimmune things happen together? Um, and uh, anyway, it's it's super interesting, and I really really enjoyed it. And I got an hour and a half for intake with my new patients, so that was way cool. Uh, all right, I've babbled way too much. Um, let's get going with some EKG review and buzzwords. All right, so general intro to EKG stuff. This is this stuff starts pretty bread and butter, and then escalates pretty quickly. Uh, so let's let's do it. Uh, all right, so normal sinus rate. Normal sinus rate, what rate are we looking for? 60 to 100. Anything below 60 is considered bradycardia. Anything above 100 is considered sinus tack. Uh, somewhere in my study, I saw that it was rarely above one rarely above 130 but really if it's above 150 you sh- you can't you shouldn't really call it sinus tack there's something probably else going on um and we're going to get to um why 150 is a special magic number here in just a quick bit so normal sinus rate 60 to 100 bradycardia under 60 uh tachycardia uh above 100 rarely above 130 and special things happen pretty much at above 150 um, treatment for bradycardia, um, apparently none if they are asymptomatic or if they're actually having symptoms. Favorite answer, atropine, atropine, atropine for symptomatic bradycardia. All right, moving on. Um, oh, here's a good question. What are the most common causes of sinus tachycardia? What are the most common causes of sinus tachycardia? Interesting they are non-cardiology issues, so things that have nothing to do with the heart, like infections, fevers, sepsis, hemorrhage, pain can cause tachycardia, um, hypoxia, anemia, anxiety, duh, hyperthyroid issues, uh, also people on cocaine, people taking decongestants, so like Sudafed stuff, um, super, super important during the winter months when anybody came in. I always had to ask if they had taken decongestants. Um, And then, of course, hypoglycemia. So all of those things can cause um, sinus tachycardia, which, I don't know, that's just, I don't know, fun fact. All right, moving on. How do you determine the rhythm if, no, how do you determine the rate the heart rate, um, when you look at an EKG, as long as it's regular. And we were always told um, that there's pretty much two methods you can you can use. One's a little bit better if it's irregular rhythm. One's a little bit better if it's regular rhythm. Um, so the magic numbers are, you know, find the find the peak of the QRS um, and then count count over to the next count over to the next top of the QRS. So the magic numbers that you're looking at here are. 300, 150, 100, 75, 60, 50, 42, and 38. And that's where I stopped. Um, So from the top of one QRS to the very next top of the other QRS, you've got to count like those like small-ish boxes, like the medium-sized boxes. Again, I told you guys, you need to know what I'm talking about. This is review. Um, But I can never remember those dumb numbers. So again, 300, 150, 100. 
75, 60, 50, 42, 38. And then there's more beyond that. But like after that, that's just super bradycardic. Um, so that's if the rate is regular. If the rate is irregular, essentially all you do is count the R waves in a six second strip and multiply that by 10 because that gives you essentially a minute. Um, so that is uh, how to find the rate. Um, next up, definition of sinus arrhythmia. Sinus arrhythmia is normal sinus rhythm, but the rate increases with aspiration, um, showing as QRSs that are occasionally closer together. Um, so it's an arrhythmia. It's an irregular rate. Um, and anyway, that's the pathophysiology. I had forgotten, I had forgotten where that had come, come from. It came from inspiration. So that's why it exists. Next up, sick sinus syndrome, a.k.a. Tacky Brady. So this is a sinus arrest with atrial tachycardia and Brady arrhythmias. Um, so this looks, this just looks super crazy um, on the EKG. But essentially, you've got a sinus arrest. So it's just like a long pause. And then there's like this atrial tachycardia and Brady arrhythmias. Um, so it's, it's not good. And the treatment for it is is indicative of how not good it is. Treatment for sick sinus syndrome, aka tachybrady, is a pacer or an AICD uh, if there's VTAC present. So somebody's got sick sinus syndrome, those people need to be paced like for the rest of their lives. And if if in that crazy syndrome they had any VTAC, they're getting an AICD, no less. Um, so sick sinus syndrome is actually a, um, a pretty serious thing. All right, moving on. Um, and also, sorry, this isn't in the best order, but uh, it is what it is. So I always forget uh, how long the like QRSs and the PR intervals should be. Um, so let's talk about that now. So a normal PR interval is three to five small boxes in length, three to five small boxes in length, anything longer than five, and it's considered pathological. And we're going to get to that in a minute. And anything shorter than three boxes is also pathological. So there's other um, heart rhythms that would cause that. So normal PR, three to five small boxes. Normal QRS interval um, is even shorter than that, about three three little boxes or less. And that's because you just, you want your heart to be super efficient, right? The QRS represents the ventricle squeezing, uh, the left ventricle squeezing. Um, and you want that to happen super efficiently. So you want it to take very, very few seconds. And so three small boxes for the QRS. And then just for completeness sake, a normal QT interval lasts for 11 small boxes. And things that can prolong a QT interval, uh, one of the main ones is hypocalcemia. So low on calcium will prolong the QT interval. And we're going to talk a little bit more um, about um, prolongation here in a minute. Uh, all right, moving on. A normal axis. How do you tell a normal heart axis? Which, um, which QRS complexes are you looking at? You're going to look at one and AVF. So you're looking at the QRS complexes in one and AVF. And um, normal is they're both pointing upright. So they're both, uh, both of the QRSs in one and AVF are upright in a normal axis. Um, 
So let's talk about left axis deviation and right axis deviation. Uh, And I can't take credit for this next little mnemonic. Somebody totally told this to me. Um, But in order to to figure out if there's left axis deviation, um, the QRSs in one and AVF point away from each other. So one points up and one points down. And that uh, you're supposed to say to yourself, oh, the QRSs are leaving each other. There's, they're pointing away, so they're leaving. So there's your L. So if they're pointing away from each other, they're leaving, meaning left axis deviation. Um, if you happen to see left axis deviation, here's some things that you might be considering could be going on. Um, possible left bundle branch block. So we're going to get to that. Um, and also there also could be maybe a possible, um, inferior MI, but I think a left bundle branch block is, I think I came across that more in my studies. So, um, QRS complexes are pointing away from each other. They're leaving each other in one in AVF. That's left axis deviation. Right axis deviation is they're pointing towards each other. So one is pointing down, um, and the other one in AVF is pointing up. So they're right for each other. They're pointing towards each other. They're right for each other. That is right axis deviation. Uh, if you happen to see right axis deviation, something that you might want to suspect, um, an MI, what location is in the uh, lateral, Le- um, a lateral MI. All right. What happens if both of the QRSs are pointing down in one in EVF and AVF? That is extreme right axis deviation. So both of the QRSs are pointing down in one in AVF, and that is extreme right axis deviation. All right, moving on. Um, let's talk about um, P waves. So what hap- What do you what do you want to call it if you see tall peaked T waves? Buzzword: tall peaked. I hope did I say T? Sorry, I meant P. Tall peaked P waves are indicative of right atrial enlargement. So right atrial enlargement goes with tall peaked P waves. What about if the P wave is bifid or like a double hump or kind of looks like an M? So there's like two two humps on it or it's bifib, bifid, excuse me. Um, we already talked about right axis deviation. So this one has got to be left axis deviation. So if you see uh, a P wave that like goes up and down and up and down like a camel's hump, that is left axis deviation. Uh, okay, moving on. Let's talk about the normal heart transition. So nor- so we're looking at the limb leads here. Um, so V1 through 6, normal transition occurs between V3 and V4. I mean, which is the nice thing is that because the way that EKGs are laid out, V1, 2, 3 is all in a row, and then you have to scoot over to the next column to see V4, 5, and 6. So literally, the transition happens between like the break and the columns, so between V3 and V4. Um, And in a normal transition, the R wave starts out very small, and so the R wave is um, the the positive deflection um, in like V in the V leads. Um, so the R wave starts, starts normally starts out very small in V1, and then it gets taller and taller until finally it flips, meaning transitions. And then the S wave becomes more prominent. And the S wave, if you recall, is the negative deflection. So the one that points down. So in a normal transition, we'd see a tiny little positive 
R wave in from going from one, two, and three, and then all of a sudden they get taller and taller and taller um, and, t- and more prominent. Um, and then the, they wait, sorry, hold on. They get taller and taller until they are more prominent than the S waves. Um, and so then by the time you re- reach to, um, by the time you get to V4, they're super, they, the R waves are taller than the S waves are deep. Uh, again, I hope you followed that. Um, but that's what we expect to see. The positive R wave gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and that's relevant here in a minute. So early transition is going to happen anytime before the V3 to V4. So V1 to 2 or V2 to 3, because of course, V3 to 4, totally normal. Um, so early transition is just a flip, a flipping of the deep S waves for the tall R waves, um, which ha- happens before V3 uh, to V4. If you happen to see early transition, what's the buzzword that you might want to think is going along with this? What's happened? What's a pathology that you might want to think is going along if you see early transition? Turns out it's RVH. So let's talk a little bit about what RVH looks like. So RVH is super tall R waves in V1 and V2. Um, And usually this actually goes along with right axis deviation as well. Um, So like RVH, right axis deviation, and early transition, sometimes those three things kind of ride together. Um, So that's something to put in your hat and remember. Um, So let's talk about, so we just talked about early transition and RVH. What about if all of the R waves look the same in V1 through 3, right? We just said that the positive R waves are supposed to get bigger as we go from V1 to V2 to V3. But what happens if they all look the same and they're they're not getting any bigger? This is called poor R wave progression. And the buzzword that at least my program uh, instructor was super wanted us to know was that if you see poor R wave pr- pr- progression, you the words that are should be rolling through your head are possible age indeterminate MI. Um, so possible age indeterminate, if all the R waves look the same in V1 through V3, that is considered poor R wave progression. Um, and that is a po- um, possible age indeterminate MI, meaning we have no idea when they had an MI. Maybe it was a week ago. Maybe it was 20 years ago, but it's possible that they had one. Um, all right, moving on. So we talked about RVH. Let's talk about LVH, so left ventricle hypertrophy. Um, and this is, in my opinion, a little bit easier to see. Um, essentially, what you're looking for are super tall R waves in V5 and V6. Um, and that makes a little bit of sense if you think about where V5 and V6 are placed on the body, right? V1 starts basically like on the left side of the boob and goes all the way over in a straight line. Excuse me, it starts on the right side of the, the boob or, um, you know, a, a male pec. Um, so it starts on the right side of the heart at V1, and then you just put them in a row all the way over to V6. So... If you're on the left side of the heart, you're obviously looking at the left ventricle. And if the left ventricle is super hypertrophied, you're going to see super tall because um, the muscle is just squeezing so hard. Like it's it's got a huge electrical impulse that comes goes along with it. You're going to see super tall squeezing, i.e. super tall 
uh, R waves in V5 and V6 over the left ventricle um, on that side over there. So um, essentially, if the if you look at like V5 and V6 and like the lines are essentially touching each other, meaning like the the R wave from V6 is touching and and like encroaching on the line space of V5, you can almost guarantee that that is an LVH. Um, and usually, again, we see LVH that goes along with left axis deviation. So just like right ventricular hypertrophy, RVH went along with right axis deviation and early transition, a lot of the times LVH is often seen with um, uh, left atrial or left axis deviation. Um, so that is LVH. One final thing we need to talk about LVH is um, this LVH strain pattern. Um, so what this is, is ST depression that's asymmetric. And so like what it looks like is it's down sloping. So if you have like an the, an ST, I mean, everybody always gets our panties in a bunch when the ST is elevated, but the ST can also be depressed and it can look like a slide like and that's what I mean by it's asymmetric it looks like a slide like it slopes downward um so if you have um signs of LVH meaning super high voltage super R super tall R waves in V5 and 6 that overlap and touch each other and look for look for an LVH strain pattern which is again this ST depression that's this downsloping slide um, and then you also will see T wave inversions um, again in, in leads five and six um, so that is an LVH strain pattern um, all right so we kind of talked about most of this stuff here um, let's move on and talk about um, the different arrhythmias <laughs> All right, so some arrhythmia stuff, so things that you might see, um, and some buzzwords. So if you see a sawtooth pattern, again, hopefully um, everybody knows what that means. So if you see a sawtooth pattern, immediately you should be thinking A, flutter. And especially, um, especially the very next thing after that is you should be thinking a rate of about 150, and that's the magic number. Um, and it's got something to do with, and people who understand this better than I, I'm so sorry that I'm going to, I'm just totally going to butcher this, but essentially it's, it's atrial flutter, meaning the impulse is just circling around and around and around in the atria, right? We're calling this atrial flutter. So this, there's this impulse that's just circling around and around and around. Usually it flutters at 300 beats per minute, but that's like absolutely crazy. Nobody's heart goes 300 beats per minute. So what the AV node does instead is it tries to block the the rate of 300 that this that this errant um, impulse wants to wants to beat at. And so the AV node actually blocks it. And if the AV node is successful at blocking every other one of these impulses that is trying to conduct to tell the heart to squeeze at a rate of 300, if the AV node is successful at blocking every other one, guess what the rate's going to be? 150. It's just 300 divided by two, right? It's just It's just blocking every other one that comes through. So that's why 
if you see a heart rate of 150, yes, officially fine. That's tachycardia, right? It's over 100. But like, you definitely should be considering, God, could this be atrial flutter? Um, and so one of the ways to confirm that, of course, is to see the sawtooth pattern. Um and part of the sawtooth pattern also is that there will be no P waves. Um, so there's no P waves. You see a sawtooth pattern. If the rate is 150, that is a magic number, my friends. Go ahead and call that atrial flutter. Um, also, interestingly, this rate will be regular. So a flutter is regular, right? Despite the fact that we've got this impulse fluttering around and around at 300, um, usually. Um, it, it actually happens pretty regularly. Uh, so a regular rate, regular, regular rate for a flutter. Now, treatment. How do you treat a flutter? Well, that depends. If the patient is stable, um, try vagal maneuvers. Um, and so like, uh, like what yawning is helpful, splashing cold water on your face, carotid massage, although, you know, you really don't want to do that in like elderly people and maybe no one ever. Um, bearing down is helpful. So like, I mean, it's crazy, but like trying to poop, um, I have heard on clinical rotations is the thing. But uh, anyway, so those are some vagal maneuvers. I'm sure there's many more. Um, so vagal maneuvers are first beta blockers or calcium channel blockers for a flutter. So that's if the patient is stable. Now, what if they're unstable? So unstable atrial flutter, I don't know, probably like they're feeling symptomatic. Um, their blood pressure is, uh, you know, not sustainable. Um, th that is an indication for synchronized cardioversion. So synchronized cardioversion in an unstable patient with a flutter and then definitive treatment is actually um, ablation. So that is a flutter. Magic number, 150. Magic pattern, sawtooth. P waves, nope. Regular or irregular rate? Regular. Got it. A flutter. Moving on. What happens if you see this? Heart rate greater than 100. Regular rhythm. Narrow QRS. And it's difficult to discern any P waves. Heart rate greater than 100, regular rhythm, narrow QRS, difficult to discern any P waves. Now, I know we just kind of said, well, maybe that could be a flutter. Yes, but did I say that there was a sawtooth there? No. Lack of sawtooth. This, so uh, this thing, you want to consider that it's possibly SVT. And the only reason that you don't see any P waves is because the the heart rate is going so fast that you literally just can't see them um, on the EKG. Um, in my opinion, SVT looks like uh, um, people at like in the first row at a rock concert, like because it looks like everybody like they're packed super close together. And like everybody's got their right hand up just or left hand up, whatever, like just like sc screaming and having a good time. So in, in my opinion, SVT looks like the front row of like a favorite rock concert. Does that show my age to call it a rock concert? Whatever. Um, so SVT looks like um, people at a front row at a concert, um, jamming their brains out. Um, so most uh, SVT comes in a couple different flavors. The most common type is AV nodal reentry, and I'm not even going to go into the other one. Um, so SVT, most common type of SVT is AV nodal reentry. And FYI, fun fact, I know I just said that heart rate over 100, regular rhythm, narrow QRS, and you can't really see any P waves, call that SVT. But little did we know that SVT can actually have wide 
complexes instead of the narrow QRS um, in such a way that it actually like mimics VTAC. Uh, and the only reason I put this in there is because on the last time that we had an EKG test, our instructor put S wide complex SVT on the exam and like the entire class like got it wrong because um, I'm sure we all called it VTAC because it looks like VTAC. I'm sure we all call it VTAC. I mean, whatever. Maybe there was like a person that was like, well, I remember that SVT actually doesn't always have to be narrow. Um, but anyway, we, we were livid and I came home. And I remember talking to my boyfriend, who's an internal medicine physician, and I was like, uh, did you know that SVT doesn't always have to be narrow QRS complex? And he was like, well, I mean, yeah, technically I knew that, but like you never see it. And I was like, well, guess what just showed up on my test today? And he was like, oh, God, that is so cruel. Um, so anyway, I don't know if that's helpful or not, um, but just so you know... Uh, if you see something on an exam, if you're or in the real life, even even better, that looks like it's VTAC, but maybe doesn't fulfill all the things. And of course, we're going to talk about that. Um, yeah, officially, SVT can have wide complex. Um, so let's move on. Um, what is SVT often preceded by? So something's going on, something's happening on the EKG strip. And then all of a sudden, the patient's thrown into SVT. What do you think that could be? It is premature atrial contractions, so PACs, and we're going to talk about PACs uh, a little later. Um, so if you see a couple PACs in a row, um, you might, don't be surprised if, if the very next thing you see is an actual SVT. Um, so officially three PACs, premature atrial contractions in a row, satisfies the official diagnosis for SVT. Um, so that's SVT. Uh, next, what are we supposed to do in an asymptomatic patient who is having PACs? So they're just kind of like throwing a whole bunch of PACs. We're not going to call it SVT just yet, which we're going to get to that in a minute, but we're not going to call it SVT just yet. This patient is just throwing a handful of PACs here and there. Um, the very next step in what should you do with this patient is check their O2 saturation and check their electrolytes. So that's just a patient throwing a couple PACs, no SVT. Now, what happens if they get three PACs in a row? Now we're going to call this SVT, right? Heart rate greater than 100, regu usually regular rhythm, usually narrow QRS, can't see any P waves because the beats are just happening way too close together. How are we going to treat SVT? Again, it depends. If the patient is stable, and it's narrow complex, which is which it usually is. So if it's stable, narrow complex SVT, first line, again, vagal maneuvers. And remember, no carotid sinus massage in the elderly because we might actually break off a piece of plaque that's hanging out in their carotid arteries, shoot it up to the brain. Now we've just caused them a stroke and they're still in SVT. Whoops. So no carotid sinus massage in the elderly. Um, if vagal maneuvers fail, what are your medications? First line medication in SVT, adenosine. Second line treatment in SVT, beta blocker or calcium channel blocker. Also, si quick sidebar here, uh, and I told this story in my class, but my mother actually went into SVT while climbing the top of a mountain while she was in Wyoming with some of her gal pals. Um, so climbing 
at elevation, you know, a little bit of dehydration here. She already had a history of SVT. She gets thrown into SVT at the top of, I don't know, like 13,000 feet. Um, and I think they did try some vagal maneuvers. Thankfully, one of her gal pals with her is actually a retired pediatrician. Um, so I think they tried some vagal maneuvers. Didn't help. Luckily, my mom had the second line medication on her. So what was the second line medication if vagal maneuver fails? beta blocker, calcium channel blocker. So my mom actually had some deltiazem on her. So she had the second line um, medication for SVT after the vagal maneuvers failed. And that still failed. So fun fact or fun story, they um, they talked to some nearby people who came by later. Um, it just so happened that the guy that they were like, oh, we need some help here. The guy was an off-duty ranger totally had his walkie-talkie on him and was able to like you know walkie-talkie down to like base camp uh and they sent a helicopter for her so like i mean and she was in svt for like two hours which was crazy um anyway she's fine uh and she ended up actually having the definitive treatment for svt which we will get to in a minute so um anyway fun fact so if you've got some diltiazem on you officially that's the second line treatment in svt first line treatment adenosine um now, if the patient has weird SVT, um, but it's wide complex, medication of choice, amiodarone. So those are two terrible names because they both start with A's. Sorry, guys. So SVT, narrow complex QRS, narrow complex QRSs, first line treatment, vagals, second line treatment, medication, adenosine. After that, um, pick uh, beta blocker, calcium channel blocker. Uh, okay, next up. Now, what happens? Oh, sorry. Let's finish SVT. What happens if the patient is unstable? Unstable SVT, that patient needs synchronized cardioversion. Um, and then finally, definitive treatment for SVT, SVT is actually ablation. So that's it's actually what my mom had. So for recurrent symptomatic episodes of SVT, um, definitive treatment is ablation. So she had that. All right, moving on. Um, let's talk about, oh, a delta wave. If you see a delta wave, what should you think? WPW, Wolf, Parkinson, White. So um, let's talk about the three components of what makes a delta wave. You're going to see a slurred QRS upstroke, a wide QRS complex, and also a short PR interval. I guess I should have said that first. So you're going to see a short PR interval interval a slurred QRS upstroke, and then the QRS itself is going to be a little bit wide. Now, it's not super wide like it is in tach um, uh, in VTAC, uh, at least the examples that I saw, but it's a little bit wider than normal. But really and truly, um, it's that short PR and that slurred QRS upstroke that should give it away that you're looking at a delta wave. Um, and again, this indicates WPW, so Wolf, Parkinson, White. Next question, what is Wolf, what type of arrhythmia is Wolf Parkinson White? It is a type of arrhythmia. What is it? It's actually a type of SVT. And this is because there's a second accessory pathway that is outside the AV node. So buzzword here, Wolf Parkinson White is happening outside the AV node. 
um, in this thing called the Bundle of Kent. Uh, personally, I was never tested on any of that business um, in PA school, but it's showed up on a couple of um, practice tests that I've taken. So Bundle of Kent goes with WPW. Now, how do you treat WPW? Again, depends. Stable or unstable? Stable. What do you think? What has everybody been treated with? Vagal maneuvers. Number one, what happens if vagal maneuvers fail in WPW? Now, this is totally different, and this has totally come up on just about any exam, practice exam that I've taken. Treatment for WPW after, after vagal maneuvers fail, procainamide. WPW treatment is procainamide. Um, and then we also want to avoid certain medications that might lead us to WPW. This has also been on um, exams that I've taken. Um, so we want to avoid medications that block the AV node. So what are medications that will block our AV node? Beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, adenosine, and digoxin. So this is why we use adenosine in SVT because we want to slow things down. So it's it's an AV node blocker. So um, it's so that's why we use adenosine in SVT. But um, we're we in WPW we are specifically avoiding medications that block the AV node. So those are your beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, adenosine, and digoxin. And then, as with most of these things, if the patient is unstable, treatment in WPW is synchronized cardioversion. Uh, next up. Uh, tricky question. How does WPW look different than Laun Ganong Levine syndrome? So LGL. So usually we learn about these things together. We learn about Wolf Parkinson White, WPW, along with LGL. And they're super similar. And I totally had forgotten uh, how they were different. And here's the answer. LGL has a narrow QRS, but it has a, the same short PR inter interval. And that's because its accessory pathway connects to the normal route via the bundle of His. So if you remember, I said the WPW has this accessory pathway in the bundle of Kent. So WPW is, ha is happening an accessory pathway uh, in the bundle of Kent. This is outside the AV node. So its QRS is outside the AV node. Um, and so the QRS is going to be wide, but in LGL, in Laun-Ganong-Levine syndrome, I'm sure I butchered that. Sorry, guys. Um, in LGL, the QRS is narrow because the accessory pathway actually goes back and connects to the normal route via the bundle of His. So the QRS is totally normal and narrow in LGL, even though both LGL and WPW are going to have the same short PR interval. Um, so that was terrible. Everybody, everybody always harps on WPW and then on that same EKG test from like six months ago, um, LGL was the answer, not WPW. So there you have it. It's all in the QRSs. Uh, all right, let's move on. What happens if you see three different P-wave morphologies? Three different P-wave morphologies. What do you want to call that? A wandering atrial pacemaker. So a wandering atrial pacemaker. And that makes a whole bunch of sense because what's what's squeezing in order to see the P wave? The atria. What happens if a whole bunch of different places in the atria are firing? They're all going to look a little bit different. So you've got this, you've got at least three different P wave morphologies. So that's a wandering atrial pacemaker. 
How do you treat? Wandering atrial pacemaker. Trick question. You don't. Most of these patients are asymptomatic. Moving on. Uh, and this is something that I really struggled with. So I hope I understand. I hope I understood it here correctly. How is wandering atrial pacemaker different from multifocal atrial tachycardia? Because they're pretty similar. How is wandering atrial pacemaker different from multifocal atrial tachycardia? And the answer is kind of in the name. It's the answer is all in the heart rate. In wandering atrial atrial pacemaker, the heart rate is going to be normal, so under 100. But in multifocal atrial tachycardia, the heart rate is going to be over 100. That's why they call it tachycardia. Um, what sets of conditions should you associate with multifocal atrial tachycardia? Uh, turns out just one that I've got here in my notes, COPD. So COPD goes with multifocal atrial tachycardia. How do you treat multifocal atrial tachycardia. We want to slow it down, right? It's a tachycardia. So how are we going to slow it down? We're going to block the AV node. How do we do that? Calcium channel blockers or beta blockers. Um, what was the thing? What was the um, arrhythmia where we want to avoid those things? Just talked about it. WPW, we avoid the AV node blockers in WPW. But in multifocal atrial tachycardia, we're actually going to give calcium channel blocker or beta blocker because we're tacky out of control. Um, let's see. Let's talk about some, some uh, P waves again. Uh, excuse me, T waves. T waves. T is in Tom. What happens? What do you want to call it if you see a peaked T wave in all of the leads? Peaked T waves in all of the leads. I'm going to give you a clue. It's got something to do with an electrolyte. Peaked T waves is hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia, peaked T waves. Now, what if those waves are flat? What do you think? Literally the exact opposite of what I just said. Hypokalemia. So, so on the on the front side, right, on the P waves, we talked about that. If the P waves... Um, are tall. Uh, what did we say that was? Oh my God, I have to go back to my notes because I want to make sure that I don't give it, um, give you bad information. Peaked P waves is right axis deviation. Peaked T waves on the end are hyperkalemia. And then flat T waves is hypokalemia. Okay, that's T waves. Let's talk about the arrhythmia that is associated with the use of certain medications and sudden death. Um, this is kind of actually a bad question. Sorry. I didn't mean to give you a question of guess what I'm thinking. Um, so long QT syndrome is associated with the use of certain medications. Um, and then a lot of times people just instantaneously die. Um, so the medications that are associated with long QT syndrome fluoroquinolones, macrolides, and TCAs. Maybe there's more, but that's all I saw, at least um, from my uh, from the references that I looked at. So long QT syndrome associated with fluoroquinolones, macrolides, and TCAs. Let's talk about another medication. How about a medication class that can actually prevent 
arrhythmic events in long QT syndrome. So we just talked about three medications that can cause long QT syndrome. How about a medication class that can prevent long QT syndrome? Beta blockers, beta blockers to the rescue. Um, all right. How about what is the electrolyte abnormality that is associated with long QT syndrome? The electrolyte abnormality that is associated with long QT syndrome. I don't think we've talked about this yet. Hypocalcemia. So long QT syndrome, we've got three medications that can cause it, at least. Fluoroquinolones, macrolides, TCAs. Other thing to add to that list, hypocalcemia. Woo! We have done a lot. Let's take a quick five. I mean, like five seconds. Oh man, that interlude is just, it's so terrible. I, I just, I love it so much. It's just so terrible. Okay, quick break. Uh, break's done. Um, let's move on into some other arrhythmia stuff. So uh, buzzwords, the CHADS2 or the CHADS2 VASC score are scoring systems that are used in what? CHADS2, which has actually been replaced by the CHADS2 VASC score. Scoring system used in AFib in order to determine anticoagulation recommend recommendations. So a score of 2 plus is considered moderate to high risk, and a patient needs um, chronic oral anticoagulation. Um, if they only have one, a score of 1, that's considered moderate risk, and 0 is considered low risk, so obviously no treatment. Um or aspirin only, but that's for another day. Um, all right, let's talk about what AFib looks like. Number one thing to remember about AFib is that there's no P waves, no P waves at all in atrial fibrillation. And the buzzword is irregularly irregular. So there's absolutely like no regular rhythm going on, no P waves going on. But interestingly enough, a narrow QRS complex because the ventricle is actually firing just fine. <clears throat> Right, we just said that this is atrial fibrillation. So the atria are what's going are what's going haywire here. So no P waves, irregularly irregular rhythm, but a narrow QRS. How do we treat AFib? And there's a whole bunch of things going on here, but basically, um, I mean, like we could go all day about it, and we probably will when I talk more about um, heart stuff. But general treatment for AFib rate control. They did a whole bunch of studies over the past, I don't know, 20 or 30 years where they looked at does rate or rhythm control work better? And they found out that it is rate control that actually works better. So what do we want to use in the treatment of stable AFib, beta blockers, or calcium channel blockers, specifically diltiazem or verapamil? Um, you can reach for digoxin if the patient has hypotension or CHF. Uh, truly, I don't know if that's a current recommendation or not. I didn't run that by my boyfriend. Um, that's just something that I saw in my studies. So treatment for stable AFib, rate control via beta blocker or calcium channel blocker, diltiazem or verapamil. Um, but uh, what if we know for a fact that the AFib came on within the past 48 hours. So it started within the past 48 hours. Um, or the patient has already been on anticoagulation for three to four weeks. You can then use synchronized 
cardio version. Um, and you should also do a transesophageal um, echocardiogram um, to make sure that there's no atrial thrombi going on. Because, of course, the last thing we want to do uh, is give somebody a stroke by trying to fix their AFib with um, synchronized cardio version. Um, so you have to make sure that there's no atrial thrombi that formed because the atria were just quivering. And so the blood just stood there. Um, and blood that just stands there starts sticking to each other. Blood that, blood that is stuck to each other is also called a clot. Um, so you this clotty blood, if all of a sudden you synchronize cardio over them and their heart starts pumping again, where's that? Where's the very first place that that clot is going to travel to? That's right, their brain. And now you've given them a stroke. So um, we can only do synchronized cardioversion if the patient has already been chronically anticoagulated for three to four weeks, or if they know for a fact that their um, AFib started within less than 48 hours is what I saw um, on the reference that I'm using. So um, what happens, though, if the patient is unstable? So that's unstable, stable um, AFib. If the patient is unstable, don't even try medication. Just go straight to the synchronized cardioversion. Um, all right. Next up, define AFib with controlled ventricular response. Define AFib with controlled ventricular response. Well, this is simple. This is AFib, but the heart rate is controlled, meaning it's less than 100. So controlled ventricular response in AFib is the patient has a heart rate less than 100. AFib with rapid ventricular response, what do you think? Greater than 100. That's the only difference. I don't know why that was so confusing to me the first time I went around this, but AFib with RVR with rapid ventricular responses, what's their what's the patient's rate? Are they over 100? Great. Call it AFib RVR. Are they less than 100? Great. Call it AFib with controlled ventricular response. Next up, um, name an Name one indication for chronic anticoagulation. We've already talked about the CHADS-VAS score. So um, outside of using the CHADS-VAS score, just kind of like general rule of thumb, if a patient has valvular heart disease and AFib, and AFib that is an indication for chronic um, anticoagulation. All right, moving on. Still talking about AFib, though. AFib risks what three adverse events? AFib risks what three adverse events? Well, we just talked about one. Why don't you want to synchronize cardio over at them? You might cause a CVA. So that's one. What else? Can, what other ischemic things in your body can be <laughs> ischemic? <laughs> uh, you can get an ischemic limb or an ischemic bowel. So three things that AFib risks. The number one, of course, is the CVA, but you can also get um, ischemic limb and ischemic bowel with AFib. Now, how do we treat AFib with unknown cardiac history or an unknown um, onset? So we have no idea. The patient came in and oh, I just feel funny. I don't know. I've been feeling funny for I don't know how long. They're an AFib. So we have no idea how long that's been going on for, and we have, or we have no idea um, if they have any cardiac history. Medications and, and anticoagulation. Again, we do not want to synchronize cardio over these patients because we don't want to give them a CVA. So use your meds, which we just talked about. Remember what I said? Beta blocker or calcium channel blocker and anticoagulate this patient. Um, what are our AFib anticoagulation options? Uh, update is that non-vitamin K oral agents are now preferred 
over warfarin. So non-vitamin K, that just means not warfarin is preferred. Um, so um, direct thrombin inhibitor, DTI, um, is dabigatrin, dabigatrin, or um, a factor 10A inhibitor, rivaroxaban, apixaban, or adoxaban. Um, I feel like we pretty much hear about rivaroxaban being used a lot, um, but I, I don't know why we would pick that over dabigatrin. So anyway, whatever. That's not going to be on the EKG slash maybe it is, but good information. Um, let's see. Hey, we finished AFib. Good for us. Uh, moving on, let's talk about, um, well, let me give you the question. What if you see zero association between the P waves and the QRS complex? No association between the P waves and the QRS complex is third degree heart block. What is the treatment for third degree heart block? That is correct, my friends. You have got to pace these people. They just bought themselves a nice pacemaker for third degree heart block. Next up, what if you see a prolonged PR interval but no dropped beats? Prolonged PR interval with no dropped beats. That, my friends, is a first-degree heart block. A first-degree heart block has no dropped beats. Treatment of first-degree heart block, what are you going to do? You're going to pace them? No, that's the wrong answer. You pace third-degree heart block. You're going to observe. First-degree heart block, no treatment. Just observe it. Just observe. Um... Let's see. Oh, no, no. My notes are out of order. Um, let's finish up with, where's my, oh, here we go. Um, let's talk about some second degree heart blocks. What if you see consistently prolonged PR interval and a dropped QRS? Consistently prolonged PR interval and a dropped QRS. I tricked you. That's a Mobitz 2. That's a that's a second degree heart block type 2, right? The annoying thing about heart block is that 1 and 3 are just 1 and 3, heart block first degree or third degree. But 2, there's actually two flavors that second degree heart block can come in. And the one that we just talked about, consistently prolonged PR and dropped beats, um, dropped QRSs meaning. Um, that is a Mobitz 2. So here's the funny little saying that somebody taught me and I love it. Um, so this is for second degree heart block, just a little mnemonic, short, longer, longer than dropped. Now you have a winky buck. If some peas don't go through, now you have a Mobitz too. So that's the difference between the second degree heart blocks, short, longer, longer drop. And that's talking about progressively prolonged PR intervals. Um, progressively prolonged PR intervals, and then a dropped beat. That is Winkybach, a.k.a. Mobitz type 1. So second-degree heart block, Mobitz type 1, also known as Winkybach. Progressively longer PRs, short, longer, longer, then a dropped beat. Call that Winkybach, also called Mobitz type 1. Um, and then if some Ps don't go through, meaning you see a dropped QRS, now you've got a Mobitz 2. But in Mobitz 2, the, the PR interval is going to be consistently long. So that's the difference in the two types of second-degree heart block. In type 1, the PR gets short, longer, longer, dropped. 
Um, so the PR interval is increasingly longer in um, second-degree heart block type 1, MOBITS 1. And then in MOBITS 2, it the the PR interval is just always super long. And you remember what we said um, qualifies as a super long PR? Greater than five boxes is a, is a prolonged um, PR interval. And then you see a dropped QRS. Um, so that is the official definition of MOBITS. Now, let's talk about treatment. What are we going to do for a winky block? Which was, if you recall, second-degree heart block type 1 winky block. What are we going to do? Asymptomatic, nothing. Absolutely nothing. What if they're symptomatic? Atropine. So atropine for your winky block patients. Um, and how about your second-degree heart block type 2, Mopitz type 2? Um, actually essentially treat them the same as um, Mobitz 1 that are symptomatic, so atropine. And then for both of those, um, definitive treatment is actually a pacer because um, heart degree, second degree heart block type 2 usually progresses on to um, type 3. And then if their second degree heart block type 1, aka Winkybach, is severe enough to be causing symptoms, eh, just lump it over there with second degree type 2. Uh, okay. Let's talk about um, what is the electrolyte abnormality associated with a prolonged PR interval and a wide QRS. So the electrolyte abnormality that is associated with a prolonged PR, because we're in the world of heart blocks now, but a wide QRS complex. That is hyper magnesium. So hypermagnesium causes a prolonged PR and wide QRS. Um, shifting topics just a little bit. I know we just said that it was hypermagnesium, but hypomagnesium can actually lead to um, a super, super fatal uh, arrhythmia. Do you know it? Hypomagnesium can actually cause torsades. And of course, torsades is essentially just VTAC, but it twists around the baseline. So it kind of looks like a bow tie. Um, so that is hypomagnesium can cause torsades. Hypermagnesium can cause prolonged PR intervals and wide QRSs. Uh, all right. Did we do? Did we do all of the heart block stuff? Um, let's do a throwback. Throwback to last section. What is the first line medication in SVT due to Wolf Parkinson White? First line medication in SVT due to Wolf Parkinson White, because of course Wolf Parkinson White is actually a subtype of SVT. We're going to use procainamide. WPW, procainamide. Put that in your brain. What about SVT? First line medication treatment? Adenosine. Um, go back to WPW. What was the most common pathway in WPW? Bundle of what? Bundle of Kent, Bundle of Kent, WPW. Um, and then we did some heart block stuff. Let's talk about, ooh, all right, moving on. What if you see inverted P waves? Inverted P waves, buzzword for junctional rhythm. Um, and that's always going to happen. It's They're always um, going to be inverted if you see them. If you don't see a P wave, it could still be a junctional rhythm, but guess what? It's just hidden inside the QRS. And the QRS buzzword is narrow. Um, 
in junctional rhythms. And that is um, relevant. That is super relevant um, for reasons we're going to get into in a quick minute here. Um, So a normal junctional rhythm uh, happens at what beats per minute? So what are the numbers that go along with a normal junctional rhythm? 40 to 60 beats per minute, which if you recall, is the intrinsic rate of the AV node. So usually the SA node sets the stage, right? And so that's where we get 60 to 100. But next in line, if the SA node sleeps on the job, the AV node will pick up. And the intrinsic rate of the AV node is 40 to 60. So if you have a junctional rhythm, we would normally expect that junctional rhythm to happen at that AV node rhythm, which is 40 to 60. Now, there's such a thing as an accelerated junctional rhythm. What's that? 60 to 100. So accelerated junctional rhythm is going at 60 to 100, right? Because normal is 40 to 60. So if it's happening any faster than that, if it's happening between 60 to 100, let's call that an accelerated junctional rhythm. Now, it's possible to get a junctional tachycardia. So even higher than that. So what did I just say? 60 to 100 is considered an accelerated junctional rhythm. So junctional tach over 100. Um, Let's go back and talk a little bit about PACs and PJCs. So this was something uh, that I needed to talk with my boyfriend about because I was having a really hard time figuring out the difference on the EKG between a PAC and a PJC. Remember, if you see an inverted P wave, that is always going to be a junctional rhythm. And that's because the impulse is happening, um, the impulse is happening lower than the AV node, and it's actually going to send signals in both directions. So it's a little crazy, but you're going to see a P wave that is inverted because instead of going towards the lead, which is what shows up as a, as a positive deflection, the impulses, one of the impulses is actually going to be traveling away from the lead. So that's the only reason you get positive and negative deflections. A positive deflection just means that the impulse is traveling towards the lead. Anything that's negatively deflected, um, that just means that the impulse is traveling away from the lead. Um, So anyway, so that's where your PJC comes from, or a junctional rhythm, rather. So difference between a PAC and a PJC is both of them are going to show up as irregular rhythms because they both have an early beat, right? They both have premature in them. So they're both going to look like irregular rhythms, just like even when you first take a look at them. But PACs are going to have differently shaped T waves on the one that comes right before... um, the early beat. And that's because that T wave is differently shaped and and looks kind of weird because there's the P wave hidden inside of it. It just came early. Um, And so the the early P wave makes the preceding T wave uh, look big and weird. Um, So check the T waves. If you're, if you're, if you've got an irregular rate um, and You've got P waves that are upright, um, but the T, every now and then a T wave just looks super weird. You might want to consider that a PAC. Now, a PJC, again, always has an inverted P wave, right? Because the impulse is traveling away from the lead, showing up as a negative deflection. 
But usually the P wave is actually hidden inside the QRS, um, which makes it look like there's no P waves at all. So really and truly check your P waves and check your T waves to figure out if it is a PAC or a PJC. Now, because um, if memory serves, I think both of them are going to have a normal uh, looking QRS. Um, So that's uh, that's helpful. Um, Let's talk about um, PVCs because we just talked about PAC and uh, PJC. So, uh, you know what? Actually, let's take another quick break. Quick breather. Oh, those dumb little interludes. Oh, they, they're just, oh, they make me so happy. Sorry, guys. Sorry, you got to put up with it. All right. Um, this is our, this is our final push, guys. Um, we're talking about like real, I mean, whatever. We've been talking about real stuff this whole time, but, uh, final push. Uh, let's talk about what a PVC looks like. So a premature ventricular contraction looks like a wide, bizarre QRS that comes early. And there's also, of course, no P waves, right? Because the atria just isn't squeezing. So in a premature um, ventricular contraction, this is a wide, bizarre-looking QRS that comes early because the atria didn't squeeze, right? So the ventricle is just hanging out there, just waiting and waiting and waiting for uh, the SA node to um, fire and the atria to go and then for it to go. But like, sometimes that doesn't happen. Luckily, the ventricle is smart. And it's like, oh, well, I've got my own like intrinsic rate and like, I can do it on my own. Um, but it doesn't do it very efficiently and quickly. And so that's why we get wide QRSs whenever the ventricle just like goes rogue and does it on its own. Um, so if in order to get a premature ventricular contraction, there cannot possibly be a P wave. Um, because the ventricle just fired on its own. So there is no P wave and the QRS complex is wide and bizarre looking because the ventricle is, is going rogue. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't squeeze efficiently. So that's why the QRS gets, um, stretched out a little bit. Now, what are you going to call it? Um, if you get three PVCs in a row, three PVCs in a row is the official definition of VTAC. So ventricular tachycardia. Officially diagnosed or officially call it at three PVCs in a row. All right. So that's some PVC stuff. Let's see. What else can we talk about? Um, What about if you see this? A super slow rate with a wide QRS, but a regular rhythm. So a very slow rate with a wide QRS and a regular rhythm. And I don't think P waves are available. This is an idioventricular rhythm. And I have a classmate of mine to thank for helping me. He was like, I don't know, it just always looks like lounge chairs to me, like the kind that you lounge in at, um, like at the, at the pool. Um, so I don't know if you can picture what an idioventricular rhythm looks in your brain. Uh, maybe you agree or don't agree. Um, but that was super helpful for me. So the idioventricular rhythm, very slow, wide QRS, but regular. Um, and it looks like lounge chairs. Uh, all right, let's talk about um, left bundle branch blocks. How do you spot them? Well, for one, you need a wide QRS. And where are you looking for bunny ears? What leads? Well, I said it was a left bundle. So what leads are over the left side of the heart? 
V5 or V6. So a wide QRS plus bunny ears in V5 or V6 uh, is how we can spot a left bundle. Alternatively, if you have a wide QRS in V1 and it points down, that is also, that is another way that you can spot a left bundle branch block. Contrast that with how do you spot a right bundle branch block? Where are the bunny ears? Well, which leads are over the right side of the heart? V1 or V2? So right bundle branch block shows bunny ears in V1 or V2. Um, alternatively, the QRS, the wide QRS that happens uh, in V1 is points to the right, or excuse me, points up. Um, that, so that is another indication of a right bundle branch block. Um, let's talk about treatment for those things. How do we treat a right bundle branch block? Trick question. From what I read, it doesn't sound like there is any treatment for a right bundle branch block. However, we don't just shrug our shoulders and go, oh, well, you've got a right bundle. No big deal here because a right bundle branch block may indicate um, pulmonary embolism, an atrial septal defect, or even an MI. Um, so we don't just shrug our shoulders, but officially there's no treatment for a right bundle. Now that's super different from a left bundle. What's the difference in treatment for a left bundle? Well, the the kicker here is that a left bundle is actually is is a STEMI equivalent. So if you see a left bundle, you sh your panties should be in just as big a bunch as if you saw a STEMI as plain as day in that EKG. So knowing that, how do you think we're going to treat a left bundle? Uh, you got it. We we need to possibly do um, uh, like TPA, um, like, uh, you know, you got ca cardiac catham. That's the treatment. So we're, we'll get to that um, in just a quick minute. But anyway, just know that a left bundle, and I'm pretty sure I got this wrong on a test. Um, a left bundle is a STEMI equivalent um, because the STEMI may actually be obscuring, or the, sorry, the left bundle may actually be obscuring the STEMI, the acute MI, on the EKG, um, because um, a left bundle obviously is coming from a, the left ventricle, and the left ventricle is super big, which means that anytime it squeezes or sends an impulse, um, the, the amplitudes are really high. So a left bundle, you may actually not be able to see an acute MI that's going on. Um, so anyway, that's why it's considered um, a STEMI equivalent. Um, so especially if the patient has chest pain and a new left bundle, you definitely want to suspect that is an acute MI until proven otherwise. Uh, all right, moving on a little bit. Um, what is the EKG finding um, in pulmonary embolism? EKG finding in pulmonary embolism. Buzzword S1, Q3, T3. S1, Q3, T3. So see an S wave in lead one, a Q wave in um, lead three, and also um, uh, T waves in lead three. Is that a thing? Yes, it must be. S1, Q3, T3. Uh, goes with pulmonary embolism. Now, what if you see uh, buzzwords, diffuse ST elevations, diffuse ST elevations in the precordial leads? 
pericarditis, diffuse ST elevations in the precordial leads, meaning V1 through 6, pericarditis. What is a diagnostic criteria for pericarditis? You actually want to see diffuse ST elevations that go along with PR depression in those same leads. Um, I think that was a finite point that I had missed previously. So diffuse ST elevations in my brain always went along with pericarditis, but apparently in order for it to be an official diagnosis, you also need um, PR depression in those same precordial leads. So that's pericarditis. Next question. What is the important distinction between pericarditis and true STEMIs? An important distinction between pericarditis and true STEMIs. Because we just said that pericarditis has diffuse ST elevations. Okay, you, I just said ST elevation. Why are we not calling that a STEMI? Well, again, double check. Are the PR intervals also depressed? But another way that you can tell is that true STEMIs will have reciprocal changes. Um, and I think I get to that when we talk about STEMIs in a bit. So true STEMIs are going to have reciprocal changes. Um, all right. Oh, I should have talked about this next question. This is out of order. Sorry, guys. Out of order question. Um, we're going to go back to PVCs. Name two associated findings of PVCs, two associated findings of premature ventricular contractions. Number one, the T wave often goes in the opposite direction. And number two, there's usually a compensatory pause after um, because the AV node prevent, prevents retrograde conduction. Obviously, you can tell that I found that um, out of uh, that's out of a book somewhere. Uh, so two associated findings of PVCs, the T wave often goes in the opposite direction, and there's usually a compensatory pause that comes after it. Now, we have different flavors of PVCs. Let's talk about those. Unifocal. What do you think? Yes, that is just one morphology. So one crazy wide QRS morphology. What about um, multifocal? Yes, that means more than one morphology. What happens if the PVC comes every other beat? What do you call it? That's bigeminy. Bigeminy is PVC that happens every other beat. What happens if you get two, B, two PVCs in a row? What do you call that? Couplet. Two PVCs in a row is a couplet. What about three PVCs in a row? We already talked about this. VTAC. That patient is in VTAC. Three PVCs in a row. Um, moving on a little bit. What happens? No. Um, name PVCs that increase in frequency with the exertion represent what? So PVCs that increase in frequency with exertion represent ischemia. I don't know if that'll be on the test, but I thought that was interesting. Um, similarly, what about if you see ST depressions in isolation with no reciprocal changes? That's another way that you can tell there's ischemia going on. So ST depression in isolation, no reciprocal changes, that is also ischemia. Um, and, oh, and here's what we were going to talk about. What do I mean by reciprocal changes? Because this took me a, a hot minute as well. I, like, I'm embarrassed to say that I went probably six months before I knew what reciprocal changes meant. So the leads that you're looking for in order to see reciprocal changes, one in AVL, so look at lead one and AVL together, and compare those with two, three, and AVF. This is where your reciprocal change, changes are going to come. So if you've got a STEMI, if you've got... Um, 
elevated ST segments in either one or AVL look for the reciprocal changes in two, three, and AVF. So they're kind of grouped in two. So one in AVL, compare that with two, three, and AVF. So those are your reciprocal changes. That's where you're going to want to be looking. Um, and how do we treat PVCs? Uh, usually nothing. Um, we already talked about VTAC. What is the official criteria, though, for VTAC? We already said three or more consecutive PVCs and a heart rate that's greater than 100. So that's a little piece that we didn't talk about just yet. So um, official official criteria for VTAC, three or more consecutive PVCs and a heart rate greater than 100. Um, sustained VTAC definition, what's that? Sustained VTAC, greater than 30 seconds. Um, name the thing that commonly comes before VTAC. Name the thing that you see that commonly comes before VTAC, before a patient gets thrown into it, a prolonged QT interval. Prolonged QT interval. Um, how do we treat VTAC? Going back to what we talked about at the beginning, well, it depends. Are they stable or not? Stable and sustained VTAC, try amiodarone or lidocaine. Lidocaine, stable or sustained VTAC, try amiodarone or lidocaine. Now, we're going to break up unstable. We're going to talk about unstable with a pulse and unstable VTAC without a pulse. Hopefully, you definitely know what unstable without a pulse is. Unstable, but with a pulse, synchronized cardioversion. So we need to amp it up a little bit. Medications aren't going to work because they're unstable, right? We can use amiodarone or lidocaine if we have stable, sustained VTAC. But if that patient is unstable and still has a pulse, you've got a synchronized cardiovert them. And of course, if they're unstable and no pulse, I mean, no pulse, that patient is dead. <laughs> what, do you, what do you do for dead patients? Unsynchronized cardioversion, a.k.a defibrillation and CPR. So again, your patient's dead. You're going to defibrillate them and do CPR. Um, what happens if we don't treat VTAC? Untreated VTAC, why do we get worried about it? Like, why do you even have to do anything if the patient is stable? Great, your patient is stable. They have got a pulse. They're in VTAC. Why should you do anything about that? Because untreated VTAC can, can progress to V-fib. And if you recall, V-fib is a shockable rhythm, right? Your patient's dead. Um, V-fib, speaking of, comes in two different flavors, coarse and fine. Coarse, in my opinion, so these are just my little mnemonics, coarse V-fib, in my opinion, looks like you tried to draw a straight line while you were riding the back of a jet ski. So the lines are like kind of along the baseline, but every now and then they just get totally jacked up and go all over the place because you hit a wave. Fine V-fib, on the other hand, looks like a toddler tried to draw a straight line. It's So it's actually a little bit better than riding a jet ski, um, but it's still like it's still not an official straight line. So those are the two flavors of V-fib. Um, and again, how are we going to treat V-fib? Well, your patient is dead. So how do you treat a dead patient? Unsynchronized cardioversion, a.k.a. defibrillation and CPR. Um, we already talked about... Pulseless VTAC, um, but just for compare-contrast, pulseless VTAC, buzzword, I just said your patient is dead. They don't have a pulse. Unsynchronized cardioversion. Um, let's see. A uh, little bit of review. What are two antiarrhythmic medications that should be used 
in both VTAC or VFib, amiodarone or lidocaine, um, kind of a little bit of review. Um, let's go back. We talked about um, VTAC and we talked about torsades. How do you treat torsades? I should have put that up there. How do you treat torsades? IV magnesium, because do you remember what did I say caused um, or can cause? What's the electrolyte deficiency that can cause torsades? Hypomagnesium. So if they're hypomagnesium and they're going into torsades, treat them with IV magnesium. Uh, moving on, how do you define pulseless electrical activity? Define pulseless electrical activity. This is an organized rhythm on the monitor, but the patient has no palpable pulse. So, I mean, literally, it's right there in the definition. Pulseless, patient's got no pulse, but electrical activity. So you see squiggle lines um, via an organized rhythm, right? You don't, don't just say, don't like squiggle lines VTAC and say, oh, that's PEA. No, I mean an actual organized rhythm, but the patient doesn't have a pulse. We're going to call that PEA. How do you treat PEA? Well, what did I just say? They don't have a pulse. Um, in this case, though, we do CPR, epinephrine, epinephrine, and then check for a shockable rhythm. So PEA in and of itself is not officially um, a shockable rhythm because there's an organized rhythm on the screen. So, like, what are you possibly going to shock? Like, they've already got an organized rhythm. They just don't have a pulse. It's just not perfusing. So don't shock them. They already have a rhythm. But you do need to do CPR because they're not perfusing, as evidenced by the fact that they've got no pulse, shove some epi at them, and then check for a shockable rhythm every two minutes. Uh, what does asystole look like? This is an actual straight line, yeah, for the most part. It can be a little wavy, but nothing like um, fine V-fib. Treatment for asystole is actually the same as um, PEA. Um, if you need to give someone adenosine in the setting of trying to bring them back to life, um, what's the dosing protocol? You're going to start with 6 milligrams first. If there's no change, then you can up it to 12. If there's still no change, do you up it again? No. You just give them a second dose um, of 12 milligrams. Uh, okay, moving on. Um, oh, let's talk about MI. Um, actually, should we take a quick break? Yeah, teeny quick break. We're going to talk about MIs, and then we're done. We're done. Almost. All right, guys, final countdown. I know I said that before. I'm so sorry. But, you know, a lot of information. This is all EKG stuff. Uh, so anyway, final countdown. MIs. Um, what leads should you look in if you suspect an anterior MI? Anterior MI is seen in what leads? V3 and V4. What's the artery? The LAD, the left anterior descending. Anterior MI seen in leads three V3 and V4. What about uh, if you see an MI in uh, leads V1 or V2? That's a septal MI. So V1 or V2, septal MI. What's the artery? The proximal LAD, the proximal left anterior descending artery in septal MIs seen in V1 and V2. Um. How about V5, V6, 1, and AVL? V5, V6, 1, and AVL. Where's the MI there? That is a lateral wall MI. So a lateral MI seen in V5, V6, 
one in AVL, and that makes complete sense. Think back to where those leads are. V5 and V6 are all the way on the left side over there. One in AVL, all the way on the left side of the body. Um, so that's a lateral MI. Inferior leads. Where do you see an MI? Leads two, three, and AVF. And I don't know why, but I always remember that because of the AVF. The F stands for inferior. I don't know why. That's just how my brain works. So two, three, and AVF, those things always go together. That is your inferior MI. What artery should you suspect in an inferior MI? Right coronary. So your RCA. RCA is, is suspected in an inferior MI. Um, speaking of inferior MIs, um, what's a physical exam finding in an inferior MI? Bradycardia. And if memory serves, they can also like show signs of CHF. Um, maybe I just made that up, but definitely bradycardia, physical exam finding in an inferior MI. How about a posterior wall MI? This is a little bit tricky, um, but it's a thing. Posterior wall MI. You're actually going to see what appears to be ST depressions in V1 and 2 with a really big R wave. And it's a trick because you're looking at it from the posterior. So you're looking at it from behind. So that R wave that you see, that you think you see that's really big, that's actually a huge Q wave just being seen from behind, right? Because it, it all depends on where these leads are placed on the body. So... If things are pointing up on the page, that just means that the impulse is coming towards the lead. Um, and so if you've got uh, if you've got an MI that's going on on the posterior aspect of the heart, things are going to be a little bit different because they're going to be traveling. The impulses are are going on at like slightly different angles um, and vantage points than what we're used to. So anyway, that's why posterior MIs are tricky. It's actually going to look like an ST depression, um, but that the depression just means that the impulse is traveling away from the lead. It's actually an elevation. Um, I hope you followed that. All right. Speaking about ST elevation, what's the official definition? In order to call something an ST elevation, what does it need to look like? Well, this is a one millimeter elevation in two contiguous leads plus reciprocal changes in the opposite leads. So we, again, in order to have an ST elevation, we need a one millimeter elevation in two contiguous leads, meaning side by side, plus reciprocal changes in the opposite leads. Do we remember what those reciprocal changes were? Where do the reciprocal changes happen? You're comparing what, what chunk with what chunk? You're comparing one in AVL with two, three in AVF. So one in AVL, two, three in AVF. Those are your reciprocal changes um, required for definition of ST elevation. Um, let's say you see ST elevation. We've got a STEMI. What's the main treatment? Main treatment, reperfusion therapy via PCI, per, percutaneous coronary intervention, aka coronary angioplasty. Sorry, guys, I didn't make up these words. That's just all the ones that I found. So we want to reperfuse the heart, right? The heart is having a heart attack. You literally want to get more blood flowing to it. So we need to do percutaneous coronary intervention, which is also called like coronary angioplasty. Um, that's the best treatment for it. Time frame within three hours of MI onset, uh, 90 minutes is ideal. If we don't use coronary angioplasty, if we don't do reperfusion, P slash PCI, what can we do? What are the medications? 
So meds in STEMI. Aspirin, heparin, beta blocker, ACE inhibitor, nitrates, morphine, possibly a statin. So the meds for STEMI, and I, I'm sure some of this is, has changed, but from the pants prep pearls, aspirin and heparin, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, nitrates, morphine. Now, of those two, which of them have mortality benefit? And th- this question has come up on the um, practice test that I've taken. Which two of those have a mortality benefit, meaning people die less when they take them? Aspirin and the beta blocker. So aspirin and beta, beta blocker both have mortality benefits in the treatment of acute STEMIs. When is thrombolytics an option? So when can we use thrombolytics? In a STEMI only. So this is the difference between the treatment of STEMI and an N-STEMI. In an N-STEMI, there is no benefit for thrombolytics um, as treatment. So thrombolytics can only be used for the STEMI. And it's really just a plan B, right? Because we already said that the plan A in a STEMI was reperfusion therapy, a.k.a. percutaneous coronary intervention, a.k.a. coronary andrioplasty. So that's plan A. Plan B is thrombolytics. Um, And we would use thrombolytics if PCI is not available or it's not early enough. um, And this is to dissolve the clot. Um, So again, treatment of the STEMI, um, medication-wise, aspirin, beta blocker, those two should be first thing, first line, because they have mortality benefit. Oh, plus or minus nitrates. I'm even seeing conflicting information here in my notes. Plus or minus nitrates, plus or minus heparin, plus or minus Plavix. Um, it's, it seems like the consensus really is just aspirin and a beta blocker. So really and truly, that whole like chewing aspirin, if you're having a heart attack, or if you or someone you know is in the room having a heart attack, literally chewing aspirin, mortality benefits, my friend. Um, what are the beta, blo- beta blockers are contraindicated in the treatment of non-STEMI or unstable angina if what things are present. So beta blockers are contraindicated in the treatment of an N-STEMI or unstable angina if what things are present. And these are vital signs. Severe bradycardia less than 50, hypotension with a systolic less than 90, decompensated heart failure, second or third degree heart block, right? We already said we don't want to slow the AV node down anymore. Cardiogenic shock, cocaine-induced MI, and severe asthma or COPD. So that's a lot. That's a lot. I'm going to say it again. Beta blockers are contraindicated in the treatment of N-STEMIs or unstable angina if the following are met. Severe bradycardia less than 50, hypotension with a systolic less than 90, decompensated heart failure, second or third degree heart block, cardiogenic shock, cocaine-induced MIs, severe asthma or severe COPD. You guys, we've only got three more questions done or three more questions left. We're almost there. Um, what is the formal name for a coronary vasospasm? What's the formal name for a coronary vasospasm? It's a special kind of angina. Prince Metals angina. Prince Metals angina, a.k.a. coronary vasospasm. How are you going to treat him? Are you going to take him to the calf? Are you going to treat him like a STEMI? No. Treatment for Prince Metals angina, calcium channel blocker. Fun fact, calcium channel blocker is also how you treat cocaine-induced MIs. So 
coronary vasospasm, aka Prince Metal's angina, treatment with calcium channel blocker. Second to last question, a downsloping ST elevation in V1 to V3 with an incomplete right bundle branch block. This is terrible, guys. Sorry. I don't even know if I'm going to remember this. I'll say it again. A downsloping ST elevations in V1 through V3 with an incomplete right bundle branch block. What syndrome is that? This is Brugada syndrome. It's most common in Asian males, and the treatment is an AICD because they risk ventricular fibrillation. So downsloping ST elevations in V1 through V3 with an incomplete right bundle branch. That is Brugada. Treatment, AICD. Final question, and we're all done. During a stress test, patient's heart rate shoots to 180 and they start breathing heavily. What is wrong and what is the treatment? During a stress test, patient's heart rate shoots to 180 and they start breathing heavily. What is wrong and what is the treatment? You guys, I'm just playing with you. Nothing's wrong. That's just called exercise. This, that's just exercise, my friend. Nothing's wrong. So anyway, uh, we're going to leave it at that. You guys, we did it. That was an intense EKG review. Thank you so much for hanging in there. I hope you learned some stuff. I hope this comes up on the EKG quiz in two days. And I totally remember everything that I just spouted off to you. Um, that's it, guys. Uh, we're done. See you later. 